anybody here that sometime, you know, in the X amount of time, you've experienced God start a healing in your, in your body? Or, you know, you got prayed for and it kind of went a certain distance and then it stopped. Uh, or it seems like it stopped. There's some real improvement, but raise your hands. One, two, anybody else? Three of us. Uh, why is it all the people in my age group that that's happening to? Uh, I just want, if you just stand up for a second, I would just pray that God would take that thing forward, keep it going forward. Because sometimes uh, healing stops. I don't know. We haven't ever been able to figure this out, but we've just seen lots of different healings from strokes, broken bones, cancer, you know, you name it. But sometimes there's a mystery to it. It's, it seems to get stretched out. So just want to pray for a second. You can stand up to steel if you want. Claim it. It's free. No, oh, I'm sorry. What a, what a, were you like raised in an Episcopal church? Were you raised Episcopal? Okay, see, you got it. I can tell. Okay, let's just pray for a minute. Lord, we, we bless each of these men and women in Jesus' name uh, with healing. And let the healing that's begun to touch your body now move forward and advance today through the power of his name. Amen. Okay, thank you for, for putting up with that. Hey, today I want to talk to you about uh, extravagant love. And, and what I, I want to try to convince you of is that, that extravagant love is really healthy. It's, it's supposed to be normal. It's not supposed to be just something that we just hear about and go, oh, isn't that quaint? Extravagant love is, is supposed to be much more a regular part of our lives than we've ever imagined it could be. And I want to show you a story today about a woman who got carried away, all right? Because in a sense, if you want to describe what extravagant love is, it's where someone just gets carried away in their affection for somebody else. And, and they... They show that affection in a way that almost embarrasses people. Like, oh my gosh, you know, PDA. Uh, now I know that used to mean something, not anymore. But extravagant love is something that's really healthy. It reflects health. And, and it's something that we tend to think, oh, you know, gosh, that'd be wonderful if extravagant love could be part of my life. But I'm not dating someone or, well, I've been married for a while, so, of course, that must rule out the possibility of extravagant love. Uh, not so. Uh, whatever, you know, way you check the box on the Facebook question, uh, extravagant love is meant to be a part of your life. It's meant to be a part of your life that invades your life and changes your life in a way that... that, that would surprise you, okay? And if you have a Bible with you, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 12, there's a short story there. And some people are familiar with it, some aren't, but, but a lot of times when I've interacted with people about this story, people don't kind of get this. This is a weird story. Why is this in here? It's, so much about it is foreign from us culturally and socially. But I want to try to, uh, let's, we're going to read it, and I want to unpack it, and then I want to try to apply it to you, because the, this woman, it's a story of a woman who got carried away. And she demonstrated extravagant love. And let me tell you, there is really only one person in the room 
And it was at a huge banquet. Only one person in the room approved of what she did. She got shouted down for what she did. And only one person stood up for her. But as you'll see, it was probably the most important person there. And uh, his opinion uh, probably should carry some weight with uh, all of us. So let's see. Uh, John chapter 12. i got a dog ear here somewhere. And if you don't have a Bible with you, under the chair seat in front of you are paperback Bibles that look like this. And it's page uh, 747. So let's start reading in uh, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary, who's Martha's sister, Lazarus's sister, Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. This is an editorial comment from John. He says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, which is a position of, of pretty significant responsibility, Jesus trusted him. And it turns out that the guy was embezzling. And so people would give Jesus and, and that team of apostles money for support, and they would use it to care for the poor. They'd use it to pay for their bills. And so John, uh, John says that, that Judas Iscariot used to rip that bag, rip money off out of the bag and use it for himself. And so he was a thief. And as the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied, It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So let's look at this little story for a second. There's the, the narrative, there's, there's four parts to it. They're real simple. This woman, Mary, is uh, invited to a banquet. And, you know, uh, women were, like children, were expected to be seen and not heard. Or to serve, like, like her sister Martha was doing. But, but Mary was so moved by Jesus and his presence there that it says... Because if you read, this banquet was to honor Jesus. Not only because of this notable miracle he had done, but, I mean, he just, who he was, was something that just overwhelmed people. And this community said, let's honor Jesus. So they have this banquet. Martha's serving the meal. Mary comes up. She doesn't have anything to do. She's probably not a good cook, probably got some challenge in the domestic area. So she takes some perfume, a, 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 like a, a container of perfume. And you have to understand, this is in, if you've ever been to, to, to developing countries, 
The sanitary conditions are different than our, our country, okay? I've, I've been to Sao Paulo, I've been to Rio de Janeiro, I've been to Mexico City, I've been to Tijuana, I've been to the, the garbage dumps and El Paso, you know, the, the flavelas, slums. It's a completely different world than this nice sanitized world we live in. And let me tell you something, it smells. And I don't mean like fragrance, it's not like, you know, Cajun cooking, wafting through the air. It can be pretty gamey. And in the ancient world, in the first century, it was like that. And so smells, you get used to them. You know, I, I, I remember spending some time doing some ministry in uh, Wichita, Kansas, and we lived right near the cattle processing plant. Woo! I've never smelled anything worse than that. And for the first few days, it smelled horrible. After that, we just got used to it. But every once in a while, you know, after a meal, you go out in the van, you drive past it and go, whoo, boy, it's still there, still smells. So they would take scented scents like this, and they would uh, mix them in oil, and they would use them when people would come in, and they would you know, touch it on their foreheads, or they'd pour it on their hair, or on their clothes, and so around a banquet table, the food would, would smell good, but, you know, everybody would come in, the streets are filled with animal dung, it's just, everybody's dirty, it's, it's just a different world, and so this would kind of enhance the experience. But Mary isn't just giving everybody a dab of this perfume to help aid things, she's focused on Jesus, and she takes what we're told is a is a year's worth of wages worth of perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, which was a custom when you came into a banquet, the servants would wash your feet. Because again, like I said, you, you, you've been walking in the streets and you track animal dung in, and, and it doesn't add to the banquet experience. So she's washing his feet, but she uses probably all her life savings which was bound up in this jar. And it says that as she did it, she took her hair, her long hair, and she began to wipe Jesus' feet clean. And, it, and, and, and she's probably weeping. And it says that the crowd, I think when this happened, and the, all of a sudden the fragrance just fills the room, all the conversations stop. Everyone looks over and sees what's going on, and there's just stunned silence. Because, number one, women wore their hair up in public. They wore their hair down in the bedroom. Do you understand the significance of that? Uh, the only people who let their hair down in public were prostitutes. And there's a strong indication that Mary had been a prostitute. And, you know, Mary and Martha, just like good sister, bad sister. But Mary had, had become a follower of Jesus. And her life had been changed by meeting Jesus. And so in this setting, she sees Jesus not really being honored. He's being honored because there's a banquet. But when he comes in the house, no one takes care of him. No one washes his feet. And who knows what other sort of uh, slights he was experiencing you know, social slights. 
She didn't care. She wanted him to be treated better than anybody and everybody. And, I, and it, it seems like her heart was so moved by who he was that she took the best thing she had. She poured it on his feet, totally unusual. She let her hair down to wipe his feet because she didn't even have a towel because that's what the servants would have was a towel to wipe off the, the guest's feet. She didn't have that. And so she is in this gesture this, of extravagant love. She is carried away by Jesus. Jesus captures her, and she just spontaneously demonstrates her affection for him in this, in this very uh, unique way. Well, stunned silence from everyone. Judas, one of the apostles, one of the people that Jesus is training to continue his teachings and his mission in the world, Judas stands up and just berates her and says, why are you wasting all this on Jesus? Now, just think of how that sounds. In, in the banquet's honoring Jesus. She's honoring Jesus. And Judas goes, let's not get carried away. Okay, let's honor Jesus, but let's not get carried away, right? I mean, let's keep some propriety here. This is embarrassing. It's wasteful. It's wrong. And he's speaking for probably lots of people. And I'm going to take you to another parallel version of this story in the Gospel of Luke, and you're going to see there's other people who thought the exact same way that, that Judas did. But Judas was an apostle. He was someone who, someone who left everything and was following Jesus because he'd been captured by Jesus' love. What happened to this guy? How did he get in the ditch like this? Well, it says that he loved money. He was a thief. And we could explore that point, but you could probably reflect on that yourself. The, the love of money is a powerful thing. Jesus said you can't love money and love God. That, that your heart is going to be drawn after one or the other because money is powerful. And it can easily become an idol. And you begin, to, I think we see probably in Jesus' life that his heart has been has been lured away to money. He trusted money. He had a bag of money. It was like a bag of power, a bag of significance. He had the title. He had all these things in his hands. And his love for Jesus just began to, to leak out. I don't mean leak out in a good way to people. It, it just began to leak out and empty. And his love for other things began to grip his heart. And so... He speaks up, Jesus corrects him and says, leave her alone. And then, so he corrects Judas and, and all the people that were thinking like him. And, and then he commends the woman and he says, this was a completely appropriate thing. She was supposed to hold on to this for my burial. Because if you read the Gospel of John, Jesus begins to teach as, as the gospel unfolds, as the narrative, as his story unfolds, you begin to hear this little explanation. I'm, I, I, didn't come, uh, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to be judged for the world. I came to give my life as a ransom. I came to, to, uh, to teach and live and then be rejected and then be crucified but I'm going to be raised again. And that talk just totally mystified them. Whoop, I don't get it. I don't get it. She somehow got a little thread of it. And so she had prepared this 
Or maybe God had prepared her heart and this to use it to honor Jesus after he was crucified. Because he was buried. And it was part of the preparation of a, of a person who died. So there's a clue in this that when the woman pours the fragrant perfume on Jesus' feet, remember what it said? It said the fragrance filled the house. You ever walk into someone's house when they're, when they're cooking a really nice Italian red sauce, and you walk in, garlic, tomatoes, onions, Italian spices, like, you know, it it just sticks on your shirt. I'm making you hungry. I'm going to stop. All right. Sorry. But you know what I mean? It just fills the house. Well, it was a picture of who was in the house. Jesus was in the house. God was in the house. Her gift opened people's eyes to the wonder, in a sense, of who he was. But the sad thing was, they couldn't see it. Their their reaction... See, extravagant love will always be shocking. Extravagant love will always draw criticism. And it's a sign of lack of health within us that we're critical of love. But we are, all the time, we're critical of love. Their their criticism here, I think, was a kind of defense mechanism. It was a kind of way of disarming the power of what they were seeing and not letting it affect them. And this is a sad thing. We don't realize we can be in the presence of extravagant love. I don't mean the woman's extravagant love. She demonstrated her extravagant love because she had already experienced extravagant love in Christ. We're not talking about her extravagant love. You may have got that mixed up. Maybe I led you to think that I'm trying to highlight this woman's extravagant love. No. Her extravagant love came because she had already been lavished with extravagant love. And she was a prostitute. She was someone who wasted her life. That's why prostitutes were known to carry this kind of perfume because it enhanced their trade. It was also an economic buttress against the ups and downs of her trade. That she could, you can go, it was a kind of commodity, you could go in the marketplace, it drew a very specific price. You could live for weeks and months and even more than a year on what she had. And you can see her... Her trust, that she had probably treasured and hidden that and kept it. And then when she met Jesus, she met someone who gave her a sense of security, a sense of belonging and value and love. And she looked at that and she saw it not the way she saw it before. She didn't look at this and say, this is what will keep me secure through difficult times. A lot of us look at our money, our savings, our job, you know, the status symbols that we acquire, and they become these uh, poor substitutes for what God wants us to have and carry around inside us. Because you can tell if you trust things that you have. When you lose them and you're shaken to the core, it shows you they're just God's substitutes. I was telling someone recently, I was in this situation where... uh, the situation made me feel insecure. 
on a number of levels. And I was trying to sit there and think, okay, I need to think and challenge these things because I know it's not true. And it just struck me, what does God think in, the men, in this? Because what people think or what I think is, is just so uh, paper thin. And so I said, I said, Lord, I'm feeling pretty bad about myself right now. Maybe I should feel bad about myself. How do you feel about me? And the Lord spoke to me in this clear voice and, and said this very affirming thing about me. And it's not the way I think of myself, so it's not, it wasn't my own mind. And the way you can tell if God's speaking to you or you're just doing it in your own head is it's kind of like the difference between you scratching your own back and someone scratching your back. Do you know the difference? Like right now, literally, I have an itch in the middle of my back. <laughs> okay, it's a little better. But if I turned around and I said, Jay, would you scratch my back? First thing Jay would go, not right here, John. You know, don't think so. But if he was secure enough in his manhood to say, John, would you let me scratch your back just as a brother in the Lord, it would feel so much better than me reaching around and doing it, right? You know what I mean? It, it's different. When, when you just imagine something, it's not the same. But when God speaks to you, well, he, when he spoke that to me, all this turmoil I was standing in, it just went, and I went, oh, I know who I am. I know who I am. My Father in heaven said, this is who you are, John. And we can always have that. This woman had the Father, through Jesus, speak to her and tell her who she was. And it, and it was surprising to her. It was amazing to her. It, it, it totally reoriented her life. Instead of her life being defined by who she had been, by what people thought of her, by her family, by all the unfortunate things that had probably happened to her, by all the crazy choices that she had made, she was suddenly defined and differentiated from all those things. And she experienced what I experienced. And I think in that moment, she looked at Jesus and she thought, how can they not wash his feet? How can they not respect who he is? How can they treat him this way? He raised my brother from the dead. He forgave me of my sins. Now, in, I'm, not gonna, I'm only, only going to reference it. You can look in, in Luke chapter 7. There's a parallel version of this story. The Gospels are uh, called synoptics. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they tell the story of Jesus from different points of view. And so the, 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 the accounts have little details. One, uh, one gospel will have some details about a story that the other gospels comment on, but they'll have other details. So when you put them together, you get this picture. Well, in Luke 7, this, I believe the same story is being told. And in the story, same thing happens. Part, they're, 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 they're at a banquet. Jesus is there. He, it says that he's, in the guest, he's the guest of a Pharisee. And the Pharisee's name is Simon. And so Simon sees the woman pour, pour the perfume on Jesus. He thinks to himself, I wish I could, I could graphically put a dialogue box above my head to do it. I can't do it, sorry. It says, if this man was a prophet, he would know that this woman that's touching him is a 
sinner. In fact, not just a regular sinner, like, you know, a call girl, an, an escort. Isn't that how we, you know, how we uh, dress up that degrading uh, kind of life and make it sound so okay? And so he looks at the woman and thinks to himself, she's messed up. If he was a prophet, which we've been told, he would know you shouldn't touch someone like that. And so that criticism, all internal, Jesus goes, Simon, I have something to tell you. I want to show you I am a prophet, but more than a prophet. And he, this elicits a lesson, a public lesson. And he's not trying to embarrass Simon. In fact, what I, I want to as I lead up to the end here, I want you to hear something. I'm telling you this story because this story is an invitation from God into extravagant love of a type that you haven't experienced, even if you've been a believer. There are new dimensions and new experiences of God's extravagant love for each one of us that He invites us into over and over and over. So, It'd be easy to take this passage and say, you should be more loving, you know, you people that don't love enough. And I think a lot of times that's what we come away from in church is, yeah, I, I, I didn't measure up walking into church. I was hoping to come, you know, and get in God's presence and feel a little better than I felt coming in. But I go out and I feel like, oh, man, even a prostitute loves God more than me. I'm, I'm a miserable wretch. But that's not what you're supposed to get out of this story. This story, like all the gospel stories, it does challenge us. And I'll show you that in just a second. But it is a, come on. Do you want to experience what this woman tasted? It's available. And it's not just a concept. Concepts, however true they are, do not inspire you to love extravagantly. You have to be touched. You have to, the, the effective part of your soul has to be touched. And truth has the power to do that. But like these people, we, when we hear the stories of extravagant love, we have different ways of keeping it at arm's length. They're learned responses, but they're very effective. There was a room full of people who saw this woman, um, excuse me, There was a room full of people who saw the same thing the woman did. They weren't moved. Do you ever wonder sometimes when you, in your life, or even here in the vineyard, you come in and you see someone around you deeply moved. Whatever is going on during the, the, the worship or prayers or the teaching or whatever, they are being moved by it. And you're looking and you're going, wow, I feel like a statue. I'm unmoved. What is going on with them? It's really easy for us to be in the presence of extravagant love and to be untouched by it. In fact, it's it's probably more common for us to be in the presence of of, of extravagant love and not be touched by it. And if I ask you, I think many of you would nod your heads and say, yeah, that's right. Uh, It's more common for me not to feel like God loves me in an extravagant fashion than it is for me to say, yes, he does love me. And like when we take the Lord's Supper, there's times I've seen you guys. I've seen you moved by what's happening, by the, the, the elements. But we say the same thing week in and week out when we take the Lord's Supper. 
The words, the songs, they're the same, but something's going on. Jesus has this uncomfortable ability to draw out of our hearts whatever's at the deepest part of them. And usually, whatever is in the deepest part of our heart, when it comes out, it's, we have two choices. We're going to either be vulnerable or we're going to be defended. We're going to open ourselves up and, and, and it's painful to do that. One of my friends in AA says, you're only as sick as your secrets. When you get in Jesus' presence, the secrets of your life start coming to the surface. And you have, like all the people who are at this party, you have a choice. Am I going to let my secrets out? And am I going to make myself vulnerable and experience the love that I know is banging on the door of my heart to get in? Or am I going to live in fear and I'm going to find some way to keep this at arm's length? Because maybe I, this exposes my selfishness. I'm just selfish. You, you got company, let me tell you. This room is full of, of, of selfish people. In fact, there are only selfish people in this room. And, and, and we're either recovering selfish people, a.k.a. followers of Jesus, or we're unrepentant selfish people who can dress it up to look okay. You know, we can be into justice and generosity like Judas. We can say, yeah, I want to help the poor, but why do you want to help the poor? Is it about you and how you feel? Because you feel better when you help the poor? Or is it a real investment of your life? Is it something meaningful like this woman? You know, like they were saying, the way that the chicken helps the poor and the way that the pig helps the poor are really different. The chicken gives eggs, the pig gives bacon, the pig gives more. Right? Thank you, Shannon. Listen, one, one person got it. The rest of you are like, went over your head. This woman was moved by the extravagant love of God, and she didn't defend herself when it exposed what was in her heart, which was not extravagant love. It was twisted. She, you know, who knows what was all in her heart? But when, when, when the love of God in Christ drew the surface, the mess, she allowed it to, she allowed herself to face it, and she allowed herself to give it to Jesus. Because here's the thing about forgiveness. You guys know this. Forgiveness between two people. We're just ta- let's just talk. We can talk about people. And, and forgiveness between people, and it teaches us something about forgiveness with respect to God. When person A offends and hurts person B, for person B to forgive person A means person B has to pay for it, which they're paying twice. Person A hurts person B, person B is suffering. Person B says, I'm going to forgive person A. Person B says, I'm not going to pay you back. And it, it's really an illusion between people that if I pay him back, I'll feel better. He won't. doesn't help you. But the thing is, when we've been hurt, if we don't have God, we can't forgive. All we can do is just push the pain down and try not 
to hold it against the person. But the Christian teaching of forgiveness says that God in Christ came into the world and he stepped between all the craziness that goes on between people and says, give the pain to me. Put the cost on me. I'm going to stop this cycle of back and forth and back and forth. But both people have to be willing to be vulnerable for that to happen. One person has to say, I was wrong to point at person A has to say, I was wrong to treat person B that way. Person B has to say, I was wrong not to forgive you. I was wrong in wanting to punish you. I'm going to leave that up to God, and I'm going to forgive you. I was under the lie, the deception, that if, if I let you off, I was saying it didn't matter. I was saying that, you know, everything's okay. And none of that's true. So Jesus came along, and in this situation, he, the, he says to the Pharisee, listen, here's, let me ask you a question. There are two men who owed a debt to someone. One owed a $50 debt. One owed a $50 million debt. If the man forgave the two debtors, who would love the man more? And the Pharisee goes, oh, the man that owed way more. And he goes, that's right. This woman owed a tremendous debt. And so, if you're forgiven much, here's the secret. You love much. This is the definition of the Christian life. It's gratitude. The Christian life is gratitude. It's not I gotta do this and I gotta do that. It is, I've got a pound of this expensive perfume and I'm gonna pour it out on Jesus and everybody else out of gratitude because Jesus took my cost, my pain, my problems, my everything on himself freely for me. And I'm so grateful to him that I want to show a life, I want to live a life of extravagant love like that. And doesn't, the, doesn't like the Bible just resonate with this, we love because he first loved us. And I quoted it last week at the baptism, but Elizabeth Barrett Browning, wonderful poet, she said, uh, all of creation is ablaze with the presence of God. Every tree is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, every tree is like a burning bush. But only he who sees, sees, takes off his shoes. Meaning, Moses in the burning bush. God said, you're on holy ground. Take off your shoes. You know, reverence me. Live like you're in my presence. All the rest just sit around and pick blackberries. And, <clears throat> the life of extravagant love is experienced because of what we see. And this Pharisee, what he didn't see, his pride kept him from seeing. Because the word Pharisee means, this, the Greek term here, it means holy one. So he looked at himself and, and said, gosh, I'm not near as messed up as she is. But he was. Jesus wasn't saying, you're the guy with 50 who owed, who owed God $50 and God forgave you. He's saying, 
your life may be even more of a mess than hers because of the, the level of pride in your life. She's humble. You're proud. And pride is the first sin in the world. Pride is the root of every other sin. Pride breaks the first commandment. It says you'll have no other God before you. Pride says, I'm God. I get to say what I do. I get to say what's right and what's wrong. That's the essence of pride. That's what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the, in the garden. Just decide for yourself. And the gospel is, does it start with, like, people think in, in the evangelical world, because we've said this so many times, the gospel starts with your dirty, rotten sinner. Do you get it? You dirty, rotten sinners. Jesus died for dirty, rotten sinners. Believe in him, and he'll take away your dirty, rotten sins. But you see, that is not the gospel. That's part of the gospel. This is the narrative of the Bible. God made this wonder out of his love. He created this wonderful creation to enjoy and experience his love. Then there was the fall. We all denied him and his goodness and went our own way. Jesus came and there's redemption. He, he dies for our sins. And then the story ends in the restoration of all things. New heavens, new earth. Love, justice, peace. No more death, no more tears, no more sorrow. The gospel says you are loved lavishly to begin with. It doesn't start with you're a dirty, rotten sinner. That is true. But you, here's the thing John Stott said. He said, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. We have to see what love is, and then we have to see this re our reaction to love. How horrendous our reaction is to true love. In this little story, extravagant love is in this house. This woman comes, and her act of love brings into the atmosphere of that home the beauty of who's in that home. And all these people shrink back and criticize her because if they own the fact that extravagant love is in that home, it challenges them. It exposes them. And, but that's not the final word. God's not doing that so he can say, I told you so, you guys were dirty, rotten sinners. Jesus came so we wouldn't have to wear that any longer. He came so we could take the mess that we've made, we could give it to him, and he would give us back his life that he always had for us, that he always means for us to know and experience. And the love and the value and the dignity and the worth and the security and the belonging and the purpose and the understanding and all the things that he meets in our lives that only he can meet, that is good news. But whenever his love draws near us, it's like it's hard on us because it'll expose our pride. If we don't run towards it with open arms, it says something about our spiritual health. Remember I said in the beginning that this is healthy, this is normal, extravagant love is normal. Extravagant love is the way everything is supposed to work. 
But we've chosen this sick kind of selfishness that's, that's, that's just a horrible perversion of what real love is. And so Jesus' love comes into the world and says, let me love you, and I will begin to take you out of that world and into a world of life again. But it means we have to be vulnerable to him, and we have to receive him as the only way that we can be free from all that. And then we do, we have to keep walking that out. If you guys have, if none of you have ever seen Brene Brown's uh, TED Talk on vulnerability, you should, you should look at it. It's the most listened to TED Talk, if you guys are into TED Talks. And it, it's the gospel. Now, she doesn't say Jesus in it, but she's taking a gospel idea, which is, that's what faith is. Trust is vulnerability to a person. And here's the thing. You may be sitting here and think, my faith is so weak. It's so weak, John. It is not the strength of your faith. It it is not the perfection of your faith that's important. It is the direction of your faith. Just trust Jesus. Just say, Jesus, help me to sort this out. I want to give everything to you. And I found in my life, I have to keep giving it to him because I take it back. I give it to him, and then I take it back. And I give it to him, and I take it back. And, I, and it doesn't change our relationship. It just changes my enjoyment of it. And we want to take communion this morning. In fact, the folks who are going to help us uh, pass out the elements, if you could come up. In that story of the, the Pharisee or Judas and the woman, at this point in time, which are you more like? Just... Ponder that just for a second. Does extravagant love for Jesus and other people more or less come out of you? Or is it more like criticism, you know, cold, kind of hedging your bets, being self-protective and hiding? And I mean, You don't have to be as angry and gnarly as those guys, but you can just be chilly. Let the love that Jesus offers you begin to seep into your heart today. But to do that, you've got to recognize your reaction. And I'm not saying that worship is about exuberant expression. But if you can get excited at your kids' soccer games or OSU football or a a political rally, or anything makes you enthusiastic. It's just saying, it's not wrong to do that. Do you understand? I mean, you should be excited. Man, when our kids used to kick the soccer ball, and it it never went in the goal, but they, they, they kicked it, at least. I was just, all right, good job. I was excited. Because it's, it's, to be excited about something is to be alive. But if you can't be excited about Jesus, what does that say? What are you worried about? What is it that makes people walk into a church where Jesus is present and they put on the, you know, those, those big sumo suits, right? I cannot move at all. You know, I'm in this huge sumo suit. It protects me. Keeps me from harm. You know, what is going on with that? 
I don't mean if you're worshiping, you're doing the Jericho march around the sanctuary. Because some people think if you, if, you, if you don't love Jesus unless you're doing that. But see, that's just wrong too. Extravagant love is appropriate for the moment. You get it? There isn't a rule for it. I was going to tell you guys some ideas about how you could show extravagant love, and I just got this correction from the Lord. Don't do that, John. That means they're trying to please God instead of responding. And you will always please God if you open your heart up and you respond, and you, and you just want to be as loving as the moment requires. But it starts with this right here. You guys, this is where it starts. This is where it ends. The Lord's Supper was in Genesis 1. The Lord's Supper was at the fall, and they rejected it. The Lord's Supper was at redemption, where Jesus died. And then the Lord's Supper is fully realized in all of the world, in all of its fullness, in the restoration, in the new heavens and the new earth. So we always have to come back to the heart of the gospel is the goodness of God, the extravagant, lavish love of God. It will make you a holy person. But if you don't start with this, you'll just be a self-righteous Pharisee. And really, to tell you the truth, nobody's going to like you. If you're here and you're like that, and you may think that's a badge of honor that nobody likes you, it's not. It's not. If you're listening on this podcast because there's people that listen to this, if you're like professionally critical and angry all the time, nobody likes you. You hear that? Okay, good. Jesus wants to get that starch out of your shirt. But you got to let him in and his love in. And you got to see whatever's coming up, the pride that comes up, the self-consciousness, the self-centeredness, the anger. Because some of you, you don't draw near to Jesus because you're so freaking angry. You're angry at people. You're not really angry. You might be angry at God, but you're angry at people. And you just live with that. And it's just toxic in your soul. And I don't even know how you come to church when you feel that way. And you just have gotten used to it. And Jesus is going, give me that burden. I know it's going to be humiliating for you to let go of that and admit it, that this was stupid to hold on to it for so long. But let's do it today, right? Let's do it right now. When you take these elements, don't take them holding on to all that stuff. Jesus says it will backfire on you. The, the gospel says if you hold on to that stuff and you take this, you take judgment on yourself. There's something holy. Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, nobody can figure out why bread and wine bring presence. I don't I wish I knew. Jesus is just here when we do this. And you want to throw your arms around him and say, give me everything you have, Jesus. But I just want to be freaking angry at these people for a while because I want to punish them because they were so mean to me. And that's true. That's wrong. But don't complicate the mess by holding on to that. Let go of it. Don't be afraid to let go of it. Don't be afraid. I mean, there's some sorting out to do with forgiveness, but it starts by saying, 
I'm not going to hold on to this anymore. So get a couple of people who are going to help with communion to come up front to this. Or well, actually come up here and get the, the plate of bread and the, the, the juice. Did we, did we? Okay. We're seeing the seams again. Thank you, Jay. I need a wine person, wine person, bread person. And just hear the gospel. They're going to offer you the plate of bread as you come up, and they're going to say, this is the body of Jesus that was broken for you. And you're going to take that bread, you're going to dip it in the cup, and they're going to say, the person with the cup says, this is the blood of Jesus that was shed for your sins. And you're going to take that. And as you take this, you're, there's, a, there's a divine exchange that the Lord's inviting you into. This is, this, these are symbols of his lavish love. Come and say, Lord, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I so desperately need. Now, you don't have to have everything in your life sorted out. You don't have to have all this figured out. This is so much bigger than, than the finest minds who've ever lived can grasp. You just have to come as a child and say, Jesus is offering his love for me. And I want to let go of everything in my life that's not loving like his love. And I want to go forward in that journey. And I believe somehow these, this little ceremony is part of how God meets me. That it's a tangible invitation from him to me to experience something. And I want to encourage you, the Lord will see the humility of your heart. Don't come up here if you can't come in that posture. I don't mean that's some high bar. That's, I just set the bar as low as I can and saying, this is for sinners. But it's for sinners who say, I don't want to be a sinner any more than I have to be. And I need Jesus' help. And love is where it all starts. So why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your extravagant love. I don't know how well I've communicated it, but I, I just pray, I give these words that, that I've spoken into your hands and ask you just to blow on them and breathe on them and use them in some helpful way. But help each of us to see Jesus in the bread and the wine and meet Jesus.